3: The year is 1970. Suicide may be painless, but watching this entire movie, a different story. The film, MASH. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled.
1: I am Amy Nicholson. And
3: I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list to see if they really are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch now. Today we're talking about M.A.S.H. Uh, Don't let the opening fool you, that was a kind of just uh, a quick uh, joke about M.A.S.H., but we're going to get into it in a much fuller detail in just a little bit. But we were going to go backwards now and um, hear what you guys thought about Parasites. We have a bunch of comments to get to. Also, a reminder to you out there that we're going to be doing our next live show at the Alamo Draft House in Los Angeles. That is on March 23rd. You can go to alamo.com to get tickets. It's always a fun conversation. Amy, what are we going to be talking about that night it- The Alamo.
1: We're going to be talking about, in honor of the Vernal Equinox, and in honor of the fact that the Alamo Draft House is doing a special month of programming inspired by the Overlook Film Festival, that horror film festival that we went to last year. Our
3: first live show.
1: We're going to combine the two and talk about Vernal Equinox horror, or maybe pagan horror. We're going to talk about Midsummer, and we are going to talk about Wicker Man.
3: I love it.
1: Also, by the way, the second season of my podcast miniseries, Zoom, is out this week, as of today. Uh, What we're going to be doing over the next couple months is we're going to be talking about Zoom 2020 our effort to stop and slow down and look at the directors at this moment who I think are making film history. This is something we've been talking about a lot on the show, this idea that we are now in a moment, to me, that it feels a lot like the 60s, a lot like the 70s, where we're rebelling against big, boring studio stuff with really fascinating new independent voices. So we are kicking off the new season of Zoom that opens now by talking about the film Emma, which is done by this fantastic music video director. Her name is Autumn DeWilde, and we're going into this history of Jane Austen herself as a really radical storytelling voice, because I learned so much stuff in this episode that I did not know about how Jane Austen used books like Emma to bury in messages about politics, about slavery, about economic inequality that she laced in there that readers at the time might have noticed that we didn't know because she couldn't say them out loud because England was uh, pretty repressive at the time about what you could and could not say in terms of political content. So It's a really fascinating episode of Zoom. Check it out if you want to hear all about how Jane Austen used her romance novels to get across really cool political ideas and stick with us for the next four episodes.
3: Uh, Also, just a reminder that we have shirts, stickers, cell phone cases, laptop cases, hoodies, baby onesies, whatever you want. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see our new Godfathers shirt, our AFISAF, our BDE shirt. We have some really good shirts here. I think we need to see people out in some unspooled merch. And you can also head over to PodSwag to get a beautiful uh, poster that you can follow along with us as we count down all of the films here that we do on the show with a poster by Scott Campbell. That's podswag.com. Amy, let's get into it. Um, But before we do, uh, I know we want to talk about Parasite and Repo Man. Um, I wanted to show you something that happened this week on Saturday Night Live. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Sound of Music. And we talked about the interesting relationship of uh, Rolf and Liesel. And, you know, there's a person out there who's equally obsessed with musicals. And that's John Mulaney. And he was on SNL this week. And they did... A Rolf and Liesl sketch on the show. and I want to play a little bit of that uh, here. I think you will, uh, I think you will enjoy it.
4: This is Turner Classic Movies. Up next, it's Fiddler on the Roof for Wasps, The Sound of Music.
0: I was beginning to think you wouldn't come. Sorry I'm late. The captain made me sing in a nightgown in front of all his friends. The captain's your dad, right? Yes, and I'm worried about
2: him. Papa says I'm too young to be in love, but I think I love you. I am 16, going on 17. I know that I'm naive. Fellows I meet may tell me I'm sweet and willingly I believe.
3: That's true.
2: You are 17, going on 18.
0: Actually, I'm 33. I know I look young and I said I'm young, but I lied, I'm 33. Uh,
3: You can watch the whole (laughs) sketch uh, online. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty great. Um, uh, really I mean, should good. we
1: also bring up in the news that um, the president was upset about Parasite? Yes, I mean, you know, sure. again,
3: we can't stay out of the news unspooled, always hitting the hot topics. Um, I think we, the day we uh, released the episode, Trump came out and uh, and said this. By
4: the way, how bad were the Academy Awards this year? Did you see it?
5: And the winner is a movie from South Korea. What the hell was that all about? It. We got
4: enough problems with South Korea, with trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the
3: year. Was it good? I don't know. You know, I'm looking for like, where, where. let's get Gone with the Wind. Can we get like Gone with the Wind back, please?
4: Sunset Boulevard, so many great movies.
3: So obviously not a fan of our episode, or maybe a fan of our episode, but, uh, you know, not a fan of the film.
1: <laughs> I guess not. I mean, I I did not believe that he had sat through Gone with the Wind or Sunset Boulevard, but apparently somebody found an old profile where he where he has watched Sunset yes. Boulevard at least. All right. Or, hey. or at least it's been on. It's uh, been on. I think he got the wrong message from it, but <laughs> yes.
3: Um, Amy, a lot of people had a lot of negative feedback for your mac and cheese stance. I stand by it. Alex Hernandez at uh, Sale Jahandro says, would you be open to a chic new LA spot where uh, waiters would offer you amazing mac and cheese entrees, but it was on the voice of Justin Chang? Would you take it then?
1: I mean, the Justin Chang voice is the most sellable point to me. I think he has one of the greatest voices in the business. But if, if it was Justin Chang being like, would you like mac and cheese with filet mignon brisket? I would still say no, because I think expensive mac and cheese is an absolute scam Inflicted on the populace, and we should all say no to expensive mac and cheese.
3: As someone who last night made four boxes of Aunt Annie's mac and cheese for oh. my kids for this week, I have to agree with you. It was pretty delicious last night, and it <laughs> probably cost
1: $2. I know, and honestly, like this new, like, cacio de pepe thing, I mean, that's just mac and cheese, right?
3: No, Amy.
1: Is it just like...
3: No, no, it's, okay. it's No, cacho de pepe, I don't want to get into it's this conversation.
1: and cheese. What's the difference?
3: Spice. In a major way. Okay. Uh, look, I'm not arguing with you. First of all, if you're just having an issue with buying pasta in a restaurant, then that's a whole other thing. Cacio de pepo is amazing, especially when done right. John and Vinny's, I look to you. Ella Aqua in Atwater, I look to you. Um, really good. It's really good when done well. well. I don't want to get into it any more than that. Okay. Uh,
1: <laughs> that's fine. I object. I will have a steak. All right, but I guess that makes me more like the president. So, well, there I, you are. I, I like there you are, what are we gonna I mean, do?
3: So, uh, what else do we got here? Well, um, John
1: Carver, you know, he he added a lot of information to the scene that we were talking about in Pep Par- and *Parasite* about the family drinking beer. Oh, yeah. He knows even more about Korean beer than I do, which I find very impressive, given that I live in K Town. Um, John Carver says, you know, the first beer they drink is Phylite which as he says is, quote, so shitty that it's not technically beer. So it avoids oh, the wow. beer tax and it is about half the price of the next cheapest beer. Meaning, says John, I drink it all the time, which I respect. And he says that, yes, then you watch them jump up to Sapporo, which is what most people would drink when they say they're not super budgeting before the Japanese boycott and now that now Sapporo is super expensive.
3: Wow, that's so interesting. You know, I got a lot of flack um, on the Parasite episode because I said, you know, I didn't feel like the uh, the family – the Kim family was that bad. I I didn't feel like they were evil intentioned. And, you know, it's not a point that I can really stand behind. Like I can't say that, you know, them trying to poison uh, someone is, you know, a gentle task. I just felt like, and what I was having trouble expressing, but I, I did it on my little text app thing, was that I was saying at a certain point, you can be so poor that it's almost impossible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And this family, their want wasn't to torture people. Their want wasn't to um, hurt. It was simply to get an opportunity. And at that point, and where they are in their lives and career and education, there was no other way in. And so when they took this opportunity, they really. Embraced it. I'm not saying they did everything that was right, but that's kind of how I viewed them. It's like they're not villains. They just there's no other way. They they were trying to do the right thing for so long. And when they had one opportunity, they exploited it in a major way. And well,
1: they were okay if you ate a pizza that tasted like pesticide.
3: Yeah. I mean that look, can't be good for you. They try, they try, they're I trying. Mean, I think there
1: is a through line that connects how you feel with somebody like Harrison McKinney, who said, yeah. you know. I feel that they're total sociopaths. They nearly kill a woman with peach fuzz when all she did was her job. And I think what connects these two things, I think what makes Harrison correct and you correct is that the film is just saying that poor people have to fight each other and not the real target. You know, they can't, there's not room for everyone.
3: Right. And I mean, we continually see that throughout the movie. All right. So there we go. Thank you, Harrison. Um, Amy, last week we threw down a gauntlet for our audience. Um, to give me a M.A.S.H. nickname. And um, we let the phone lines open and let's hear what my M.A.S.H. nickname is. M.A.S.H. obviously a bunch of great nicknames. Hawkeye, uh, Hot Lips, uh, Radar. So let's see what you have in store for me.
1: Oh, I'm excited about this.
3: My nickname for Paul is Swole Shear because he's such a gym rat now.
4: I think uh, Paul's, MASH name would be Spitshine.
6: I think Paul's MASH nickname should be Hamlet.
4: Since the film MASH deals with the psychological impact of
1: combat
4: on the soldiers, I would go
3: with sheer madness.
1: My MASH nickname for Paul would be
2: Mama's Boy for obvious reasons. You know, because he tried to Mac on his mom. Anyway, thanks. Bye.
3: I like these, Amy. I like it. I like a sheer madness. I like a swole. Uh, Hamlet, I don't totally get, but I'm into it.
1: Well, you know what connects Hamlet yeah. uh, to mama's boys? that they're both men with weird relationships with their mom. Oh, my
3: gosh. I was six years old. You know what? So many people have come to me and said, <laughs> I've done the same thing. And I'm going to ask you this. If you didn't, why not? Because what was wrong with you? Uh, anyway, Amy, we have so much to get into today. It's a big episode with an amazing guest Tom Scarrett. Um, we love Tom Scarrett is a guest today on the pod uh and I can't wait to hear from him. I can't wait to hear about your thoughts on this uh pretty much breakthrough Altman film. So let's unspool it Let it be let it be the year is 1970. The Vietnam War rages on. Nixon orders a campaign against the Viet Cong and Cambodia. Students at Kent State protesting the Cambodia invasion are shot by the National Guard, killing four and wounding nine. The U.S. lowers the voting age to 18 years from 21. The Beatles release their final album, Let It Be. Janis Joplin dies of an overdose just 16 days after Jimi Hendrix. Both were 27 years old. Audiences are watching Patton. Woodstock, Hello, Dolly, in today's film, MASH. It comes in at 54 on the AFI's top 100 list, having moved up a bit since its 56th position on the AFI list in 1997.
5: Let's take a listen to it. Attention, attention. Colonel Blake has secured for us the halls of Montezuma. So big, only the biggest of the screen can bring it to you all technicolors tell it to the marines those lovable lugs with wonderful mugs so we now love more than ever tell them there's still the greatest guys in the world follow lieutenant punchy limey Babyface, doc the poet pretty boy and slattery through some of the most interesting war
3: films yet created <coughs> uh, due to a possible camp infection arlene Chu's hollywood grill is now off limits that is all
1: amy who's in it What's it about? MASH. MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Unit, and it is about a group of army surgeons who are stationed in Korea during the Korean War. It is a period piece when this film comes out in 1970, but also not because it's trying to make everybody think about Vietnam. What you have here is our major big pop culture introduction to Robert Altman, who'd been making a couple films, and here he just finally lets it rip. He's like, you want people overlapping as we're talking about surgery? You want all sorts of nonsense happening? We get all of that. His characters that we have here are Donald Sutherland, Elliot Gold, Tom Skerritt, who's our special guest today, and Sally Kellerman as Major Margaret Hotlips Lips Houlahan. And basically, these people commingle, argue, bicker, uh, strip people naked, uh, make fun of them, drink a lot, uh, try to have a lot of sex, hit on people mercilessly, and sometimes take care of patients.
3: Amy, I think it's really hard to talk about M.A.S.H watching it now for the first time and not thinking of the TV show, because the TV show is so a part of my television knowledge, my growing up. It feels a part of me, yet I've never seen this movie, but I know all these characters or versions of them. They're not exactly the same. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, like where, you know, a show kind of becomes bigger than what this movie does. And this, makes it this iconic thing. I mean, MASH is iconic. And I would argue that maybe 25% of this movie and 75% of it is the television show that everyone in the world watched. So many people watched the finale of MASH that in New York City, I believe they had a problem with the sewage because everyone went to the bathroom at the same time during the commercial break. That was What? what Alan Alda said, that in New York City, everyone raced to the bathroom because it was like one of the most watched finales of all time.
1: That's wild. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow.
3: But I mean, you can't, That that's a cultural impact. I mean, uh, and also a sanitation impact. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, but like, I just was wrestling with that a little bit because it is so big, but I wonder, it's a weird example of like the, like the son of MASH in a way, became bigger than the original M.A.S.H.
1: Right, as in, I mean, are you wondering if part of why this film is on the list is because people just love M.A.S.H. the TV show so much and they're like, well, we gotta have M.A.S.H. because without M.A.S.H. we wouldn't have M.A.S.H. Right. And I can't live in a world without M.A.S.H. I mean, yeah. I will admit, and I don't. I hope this doesn't sound awful, like M.A.S.H., that theme song, which mm-hmm. we can, let's play a little bit of that theme yeah. song just to set the mood. Through early
7: morning fog I see of the things to
5: be the pains that are withheld for me i realize and i can't see that suicide is painless it brings on many changes and i can take or leave it if
1: i please I mean, that theme song, Suicide is Painless, which is, I think, the dopiest, deliberately dopiest song ever written.
3: I never got that. I thought that was like a serious song. (laughs) I mean, like, I know now that this is like... That, like, Robert Altman had his son, who's 14 years old, write that song because he wanted the dumbest lyrics of all time. (laughs) And he said he was too smart to write it. So he had his son do it. And his son, like, has made, like, millions of dollars in royalties.
1: Yeah, his son made more movie with the theme song, which then became the theme song for MASH, the TV show, than his dad did making this movie because he wrote that dopey-ass song.
3: Two million dollars in royalties. Two million for that song.
1: I mean, I have to say, I don't know if you have this kind of a block from when you were a kid, but I would hear that song come on, and it was, like, being told, this is not for you. It was, like, a subliminal message. It was, like, leave the room, go play cartoons. You do not care about whatever's happening. So I have never seen an episode of MASH.
3: Okay, well, let me just, you know, chime in here and say, I have no affinity to MASH, the TV show at all. I felt the same exact way. I was, like, ugh, not different strokes. I'm out of (laughs) here. But, yeah, that that theme song, because – it sounded serious in a world that I grew up in a half hour world where it was, it takes different strokes to the world or like Charles in charge. Like, I'm like, all of a sudden I hear this melancholy thing about suicide. I don't even think I understand what suicide is, but I always viewed that as being like, oh, match is a serious show. And then when I look at this, I'm like, it's not like, but my child brain has just said that that is a serious song because I checked out too. I, I've probably seen episodes of MASH under duress. It was not a show I wanted to see. Uh, but, like, my grandma watched MASH. And I was like, okay, you know, five for me, one for you. You know, every now <laughs> and then you can win your MASH battle.
1: It's true. So I feel like, you know, as we're starting to even talk about MASH, I have to deconstruct all of this MASHness in my head, none mm-hmm. of which is really accurate. Yeah. That MASH is a boring show about Vietnam because that's what I thought it was when I was a kid. Me too. I was just like, it's war, it's brown, it's Vietnam.
3: Well, by the way, I mean, let's talk about that too. Like – Robert Altman was trying to make it about Vietnam. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War. And he is very um, clever to kind of omit many references here, so much so that the studio is like, you got to make this about Korea, not Vietnam. And so they put these like two little title cards up in the beginning to be like, Korea. But I mean, you know, but I think for most people, they saw this as, you know, as as basically a story about soldiers in Vietnam. And I think it was very clever in what he was doing in a, probably in 1970, this is mind-blowing because you're seeing something that's happening. It's of the now, kind of going back to Grapes of Wrath. Like we're capturing something in the moment, even though he wasn't really allowed to.
1: I want to understand MASH and why MASH is on this list. Yeah. Because I don't.
3: I don't either. And, and I'm a Robert Altman fan.
1: Yeah, Nashville. I love Nashville. Yes. We really suck up for Nashville. The I think players, we love Nashville short-cuts. more than most people listening to this do. Yeah,
3: I mean, even Prairie Home Companion, which is a movie that has- flaws there's something always really I have the in-
1: same thing when i hear garrison keeler's
3: voice oh, i'm just really? like
1: oh no you're not here you don't need to hear this it's just like white noise it's like child repellent
3: i was brought to garrison keeler shows when i was a kid so that's like a part of like almost a part of christmas to me because he would come to new york city town hall and do prairie home companion and i would go and see it and it would always put me to sleep but it felt familiar it was like going to you know uh, your sleepy grandpa's house. You know, it's sort of like, I'll fall asleep on the couch, but we went and we had a nice time.
1: <laughs> I mean, How funny is it that this is Robert Altman who made such an innovative film with Nashville, and yet we're associating him with all of this grandpa falling asleep, your parents' stuff.
3: Well, I mean, we're associating, uh, I am associating Garrison <laughs> Keillor with that. I don't want to put words in my mouth. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that this is boring. But he
1: selected it.
3: Yeah, well, but I think the premise I mean, this is a whole different conversation, but the premise of Prairie Home Companion is really fascinating. It's like a national public radio and the inner workings of it. And it was kind of, I thought it was a fun way to capture that. I I would argue that film is way more exciting than an actual episode of Prairie Home Companion uh, that I've seen multiple times live. I mean, more times than I can count.
1: Um, (laughs) That's fair. And you know, I, I, I should apologize to the spirit of my parents in that, we spent my entire childhood with Pray Home Companion on. So I think it's just like this knee your reaction. Yes, it's, it's – I hear you're that voice. you're being forced to yeah. – Yes, and that's, I immediately think of my dad's really bad homemade pizza. Like, it just – it's all tangled together.
3: I love it. But, I mean, there is something about MASH as a child, Pray Home Companion as a child, that feels like this is the adult entertainment. But this movie, MASH the movie – Is not like, I mean, or let me put myself as somebody in the 1970s seeing this movie. This is counterculture. This is cool. And, you know, we were talking about how this comes out during the Vietnam War. One of the big digs that he got from the studio in the beginning when they started to see the dailies were like, your soldiers are way too messy and dirty. And he's like, that's how soldiers look. And going back to Grapes of Wrath, like your Hoovervilles look too extreme, you know, like like he's capturing something that is real. And I think this lays the groundwork for a lot of Vietnam pictures that follow it, you know, I think, but the sum total of its parts and not to kind of reveal my hand before we get into it, I don't think necessarily add up. I mean, I think Robert Altman's always a collage of things, and everyone equips themselves really well. I love Elliot Gould. I love Donald Sutherland. I love Tom Skerritt. Like, I, I mean, everyone in this movie, I mean, it's an insane cast. I mean, Bud Quartz in here, you have so many. You have Robert Duvall. Oh, I right. I forgot about him. I mean, so many people got their start in this film. It's a beautifully cast film. There is something fun about it. it you just, I'm always waiting for it to like pick up. I'm like, oh, when am I going to really Get invested in it, like it has like a, it does have this like element of like what Stripes felt like to me, but it doesn't have that humor of Stripes. Even though people go, "Oh, it's so funny, it's so funny," I'm like, "Is it?" I mean, like I've seen movies of this time, and I'm able to laugh at. It. I just, I don't know. And then people are like, "Oh, it's so violent, it's so bloody." I'm like, "Is it?" I don't know what this movie is, and and I think it all stems from this song. I, again, that's supposed to be like idiotic i don't i didn't even get that am i am i dumb for not getting that that song is idiotic
1: <laughs> you know what i think is so interesting about doing this episode now is this is a story about two palm d'Or winners 50 years apart right you know we had parasite just a couple weeks ago coming in winning this winning that palm being this major film and it's hard for me to put my head in the space of mash coming in winning the same award it can and having that same like Energy to it—that same, like, whoa! What is this film? It's crazy. And I really wish I do understand that. I, I try to imagine being in that theater at the Palais and seeing this film that you know is about, that you know is about news. You know In fact, here I even found this like newsreel of people at Cannes talking about seeing it for the first time.
5: The sun and sand of the French Riviera provide a perfect setting for the International Film Festival at Cannes. As usual, the juries had to decide the merits of films from many countries. Among the prize winners were Great Britain, Italy, Hungary, America, and France. Stars and celebrities arrived for the awards. The grand prize went to the American-entered Fox film, MASH. Press photographers concentrated on two of the stars of the film, Sally Kellerman and Joanne Float. They were joined by the film's director, Robert Altman, when they went on stage to receive the award. MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, and though the film's set during the Korean War, it's been hailed as a comedy masterpiece. But there's plenty to look at off the screen as well, so let's take another look at the beach.
1: And then the newsreel cuts to a bunch of girls in bikinis. And I was thinking, oh, that's it. Because when I hear that newsreel, it sounds like it's from an even further time ago. Yeah. You know, and I imagine, like, you live in this posh, pedigreed, classic Hollywood-sounding time, even in your newsreels, even from the most exciting film festival in the world. And then you sit down at the theater, and you hear your very first taste of just Altman's overlapping dialogue. You hear this.
0: Radar. Yes, sir. Why I guess gonna I hold better Major call Burns. Major Burns. Tell him we're going to have to another hold a couple of surgeons over from the
5: day shift out of the
0: night I'm shift. I'm putting a call
5: into General, General Hammond, Hammond and Saul. I hope he sends us those right two new surgeons.
6: New right we're sure going to need
5: them. What was that, sir? I give everything to Radar. What?
3: I, I agree with you. Like, that is impressive. And we are talking about, you know, or putting it in context. Like, so Nashville comes out. Five years later. And I think it's a perfection of the craft. I think there's other movies in between, you know, if it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, or Brewster McCloud, or, uh, you know, California Split, like he's doing things like so we are watching the first one. and, And I know that you've had opinions about rewarding the first film out of the gate, like, you know, you know, when we talked about Jordan Peele, you were like, well, I want to see what he does. You know, I don't know if if Get Out should go on the list. Um, yeah, I
1: want to see Jordan Peele's Nashville.
3: Right. And and I hear that too. And I think maybe the deficit of this movie or what I'm feeling like incomplete with is like, oh, I've seen him up this. You know, and I, and I like that this is a bold statement and it comes out and probably – it, nothing can capture that feeling of being in the theater at that time, seeing this movie, and the connection that people from the 70s have to this movie, because it feels like it is, oh my gosh, this guy is a soothsayer. You know, he's out there, he's he's seeing what we, he's talking about what no one else is talking about. So I see all that, I think, but that for that reason, I'm also like, do we need to? Do we need to represent the beginning of of it as well as, you know, maybe one of the highlights. One of the highlights, because I don't even know if – is Nashville his best film? I don't know. Maybe.
1: Yeah, and, you know, what's so funny is this is not really the film that I think Altman would have picked to introduce himself to the world. He was, I believe – the studio's 15th choice to make it.
3: Oh, it's crazy. I mean, the list of people that looked at this movie, and you can kind of see that some of them, you know, it's like uh, Stanley Kubrick passed, and interesting, because then he goes on to make his Vietnam film uh, later on. Mike Nichols passes. And I think he makes his Vietnam movie in a way with the graduate, like, you know, or I guess at this point was the graduate already out. I it might've been, it I was,
1: think. but he was trying to, yeah, that same kind of like, I can see that youthful counterculture of them being like, we want you. Yes. Because this was based on a book by, by a guy named Richard Hooker, which I tried to by, read for the show. And which a is- lot
3: of books, by the way,
1: a lot? There's more than the one I read. Oh, God. Oh, my God.
3: I mean, first of all, I want to hear about but I mean, it's MASH. MASH goes to Maine. MASH goes to New Orleans. MASH goes to Paris. MASH goes to London. MASH goes to Morocco. MASH goes to Las Vegas. MASH goes to Vienna. MASH goes to San Francisco. MASH goes to Miami. MASH goes to Hollywood. MASH goes to Texas. MASH goes to Moscow. MASH goes to Montreal. And MASH mania. The original book was written and published in 1968. The last one was published in 1977. So he like a...
1: wrote that many books yes. in in nine years. Yes,
3: yeah, this is Richard Lee Hooker. Um, and it's, you know, all based on, uh, this book called Match: A Story of Three Doctors. And this is, you know, he wrote a whole series of So they just of
1: books. like rode around for like a decade and they went to Vegas?
3: I mean, look, I think they just had these little adventures. I mean, clearly they had an adventure in this movie when they go to, uh, where well, they go to Japan.
1: Yeah. Were there wars in all the places? I mean, there's like a, there's like a war in Hollywood and they came in to do surgery here. I feel were like Were they doing like
3: nose jobs? I kind of feel like what, what he's kind of showing is this idea of the brother i mean look i'm guessing you read the book you know uh this brotherhood of people who serve together maybe they get together and you know, were following their lives I, I don't know i mean they're definitely a real traveling band i mean going to montreal <laughs> nashville they seem like they're actually having great trips it's like a, a dude's weekend
1: i mean i appreciate that they made it to montreal they made it to montreal
3: i know well wait what was the book that you tried to make it through
1: well it was mesh it was the very first Mash. but i
3: mean is it similar to this
1: yeah, very much, very much. I mean, and I think that was why they were panicking about how they're even going to make this book into a movie because mm. it was super episodic. It was just like, this happens, then this happens, then this ha- It was almost like flipping through a mad magazine. But that's know? what
3: this movie is. And that's
1: what this movie is. And that's what they had to kind of capture. And so I do appreciate the fact that they approached it in a really modernist way by having this Altman style. Yeah. You know, because I could imagine, I can absolutely imagine like why they would go after Kubrick and picturing like the Kubrick- you know, um, Doctor Strangelove version of Mashed. I think right. they would be. They were like, "That's the same sense of humor. We can make this work." Right. But to, you know, just to make it stranger and sloppier and crazier by hiring Altman.
3: I mean, in many ways, it's a better TV show. It is a better sitcom uh, because it can be episodic. You know, I think what this movie, where this movie struggles to me, is in a narrative thrust. It just doesn't really it. It doesn't keep you engaged. And while the little moments are fun and the performances are fun and the dialogue feels realized, it just kind of feels like you are flipping through a book, which I think works so much better in television.
1: Yeah, I mean, the book makes a bigger deal about the fact that Radar has ESP.
3: Oh really? Yeah, because he can kind of <laughs> predict everything that he, that um, Henry Blake is telling him before yeah. he says it.
1: And yet, like Mash is just this gigantic commercial hit when it comes out. Huge, it is huge. I mean, it's. It, I think it's even. And a no one
3: wanted to release this movie. I mean, people. The Fox executives
1: were against this. I
3: mean, they. Yeah, this uh, is the
1: same. I mean. This is the same dude. This is Richard Zanuck from Sound of Music. A couple years later, this is what he's doing. And he's like, oh, God, what have I done?
3: You know, it's funny you say that because this is also one of the first films to be released on uh, VHS. We talked about how Sound of Music was a huge hit on VHS. So it was Sound of Music, Patton, and MASH. These are the three big hits. And I also have to assume that part of that popularity, that uh, that being in someone's home makes this movie – automatically on the list. I mean, it just sort of is like, no, no, this is what we associate as, you know, a you know, a quality film.
1: I mean, that would make sense. And I think it's so funny to hear about how much Altman didn't want to do it. Like mm-hmm. his, his um, he thought that the whole book was just a series of what he called dirty jokes that appeal to the lowest common denominator. Okay. And he very much looked down on it. And one of the things that his wife had on her desk from this time period was the note where she that she found that was himself talking himself into making mash. Oh, wow. That Altman just wrote on a piece of paper, oh, fuck it,
0: I'll do it. And she wow. saved that forever.
3: I love that.
0: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean
2: I appreciate that Alman himself,
1: you know, we talked about this, I think, in the Nashville Mm -hmm. episode, that he was a Midwestern kid. He's from Missouri and that he was in the army, that he entered the army uh, in 1943, I think, when he was 18 years old. He was a B-24 bomber. It feels like MASH exists in this kind of liminal space that's like, I'm a little bit of Animal House. I'm a little bit of Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds. Well, I am the thing that is going to be Gat all of these. Like, I am the grand Gaia father of all of this comedy that would then dominate the late 70s and 80s.
3: And I think that is what is hard to parse because what we have seen now is everybody maybe taking a page from MASH's book and elevating it. Like, and I think that maybe Kim coming in and going, I don't want to do this, and then overlapping the dialogue and pushing things and and you know, and having violence and sex and and these characters that are they're kind of unlikable to a certain degree, but making the dialogue really improvised, taking the script and throwing it out. All these things start to lay a groundwork for the future of comedy, especially 70s comedy. You're
1: right. It's like I think you can see MASH existing on this timeline between the Marx Brothers, these people who come in, respect no mm-hmm. authority, create their own rules, their own laws, upend the way that anywhere is supposed to work from you know a governmental office to, yeah. to a cruise ship to a military hospital in, in Korea – and then it goes on and it links the Marx Brothers, I think, to things like Revenge of the Nerds.
3: I would say that you you kind of are hitting it around the head, which is like the Marx Brothers to National Lampoon. Because National Lampoon is Belushi, it's Chevy Chase, it's this, you know, this energy, Harold Ramis and all these all these kind of uh, 70s rebels, whatever SNL was, you know, when it first comes out in 1975. There's a counterculture in comedy there of people saying, we don't give a fuck. It's messy. It's dirty. I'm going to play Richard Nixon. I'm not going to look anything like him. Uh, you know, like this, this idea of, you know, getting out of the suited comedy, which was kind of the Nichols and May comedy right. and getting more into the t-shirt. Hey, bada bing, bada boom. Yeah. there, But there's a, there's a, a more grungy sense of, and I, I think SNL is, is the perfect uh, encapsulation of that. Like, this fuck you to everything else they're not ready for primetime players and i i believe that this movie probably influences all of them because like oh it's cool it's different it feels i mean if you look at the cast of this that's the main guest stars on snl in the first season to a certain extent
1: you know you're right okay yeah this is all clicking because we live in a postmaster world clearly yeah and I've never totally understood that slight pre-MASH world, you know, like the right. Bob Hope type of comedy, because I've grown up in a post-MASH world. So I but guess this yeah. came in and it was like, we're done with the Bob Hope stuff now.
3: But it's Bob Hope, Nichols and May. It's it's the, I'm going to put on a suit and tell jokes. It's George Carlin before George Carlin becomes George Carlin. It's like George Carlin in that suit on, you know, whatever variety show he's on. It's, it's you know, we're we're leaving Flip Wilson and we're going into more – Dangerous comedy, and I think dirty comedy again, talking about this idea that this you know the studio thought they were too dirty. It's like we're showing people for who they are. Like, look at the way that these guys look like they don't even look like movie stars. As a matter of fact, you know, he didn't want to cast uh Sally Kellerman because she he thought that she was too attractive, he just wanted unattractive actors and actresses, which is kind of a cool thing. I mean, and you go to things like I always look at this and go like, you could never make Taxi today. Or or even to a certain extent, Cheers. It's like ensemble comedy on network television was a little bit more grimy. And, you know, thanks to Friends, then we all of a sudden cast really attractive people in a lot of our comedies. And, you know, and that was more of a, a goal. You know, I think we can go back and forth, talk about comedy on cable is different, but network comedy, like this kind of pushes forward this. I mean, Taxi is this, you know, I mean, for all intents and purposes.
1: That's true. And I mean, I think a lot of what Altman did that was important here is he said to the studio, like, I don't want to hire you, your usual list of people. Mm-hmm. He went to like, what, San Francisco? He was like trolling around the San Francisco theater Love scene. Right. He was like, who am I going to pull from this weird network of people who do Shakespeare as well and say, come right. to me, make this movie. Let's all have this movie debut. And he was just as interested in the supportive people that he had floating around in the back, you know, kind of mingling, bumping in, interacting with each other, having conversations in the back of the scene that you don't know what they're doing. But he's watching them just as much as he's oh. paying any attention to, to what, you know, and, Donald Sutherland is doing.
3: And much to the dismay of Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland, because they went to the studio and they complained that Altman was filming too much of the secondary characters. They requested that he get fired from the film. The studio refused. And after the film, you know, was completed and received its accolades, only Elliot Gould confessed, like, hey, you know, I tried to get you fired from this. And as a result, uh, you know, Robert Altman used him again and again, but never used Sutherland because Sutherland didn't come clean on it. I love that. Uh, like, But, I mean, it's like, but, you know, this idea that, like, they, I would be confused, too. I mean, Tom's, you know, we were talking to Tom Skerritt in a little bit, but. You know, he's, saying, you know, he's been on record saying that 80% of the dialogue is improvised. Like what, at this point in the 70s, that must have been very unnerving to actors. To be like, What are we shooting in? And I, I know that when I've worked with actors who don't normally improvise, there is a fear of like, what can I say? What can I do? And there's a tension on set. And if you don't kind of roll with it, you can kind of fall out of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, apparently, like, I've really enjoyed going back and reading about all the fights that they had on set. Because yeah. Elliot Gould especially has laid a lot of the Miyakopo on himself. Like, he's called himself elitist. He called himself arrogant. Mm-hmm. But he said that one of the things that Altman got that really upset him... Is that, you know, he was kind of complaining to Altman, like, I don't understand what I'm doing, blah, 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 blah. And Altman just pointed at one of the lesser, quote unquote, actors, and he was like, be more like that guy. And it just offended Gould so much. And, you know, Altman, his whole response was like, this is not a movie with movie stars. You know, like, we are all doing this together. But by the way, and
3: Elliot Gould's not really a movie star, but Elliot Gould, you can see, probably is coming off of a very... Uh, Hollywood moment because he does Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice, right? And he's nominated for an Academy Award and a uh, BAFTA and a Laurel Award and Film Critic Award. So like he's coming out of it as like, oh, now I'm hot shit. And then he gets dumped, I mean, literally dumped into this movie. And now he's like, no, 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 You're you're equal to the 15 people here whose movies it's the first time that they're on screen, which is kind of... I, I, I could see that being unnerving, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, apparently, one of the things he yelled at him is you tell me what it is you fucking want because I am a craftsman. Wow. I I can get that. I I can get that. I can get that. And I appreciate that they they made up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like this film takes a strange narrative shift, though, really early on. Because you think that this is going to be this buddy film between, you know, Tom Skerritt and Donald Sutherland. They have this sort of meet cute where Tom Skerritt shows up and he does not know that Donald Sutherland is the captain because Donald Sutherland is anti you know authority he's so anti-authority that even though he is the authority right. he's not wearing any of his captain's badges or logos so you can't even tell what he is and Tom Skerritt just treats him like a driver in the stolen right. Jeep in the driveway and it seems like it's their buddy film like the two of them kind of ragging on Robert Duvall because they don't like religion and then all of a sudden Elliot Gold comes in and it's like oh no 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 I am like the new best friend now and it makes me so sad for Tom Skerritt you know that's in that moment
3: in the beginning you're kind of thrown into this world you don't know what's going on and I am really interested there. I don't I don't I'm trying to play catch up with the movie which I kind of like and I could see how that is incredibly engaging. It's not spoon-feeding you anything.
1: No, I mean it took me two watches to even understand some of the stuff that's happening. Like like really early on they show up at the base, right? And that yeah. blonde girl with the braids walks by. And one of them whispers something to the other guy, and you don't know what it is. Yeah. And you realize only by deduction later on that it's that she's sleeping with the colonel. I think that's what it is. No, yes. But the movie doesn't tell you. It's not like, oh, the blonde can't have that one. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it like goes, goes on and goes on and goes on and goes on.
3: Well, I think, again, you know, what I like about this movie is that I don't mind spending time with these people, right? And- And it's sort of like you're sitting around the table of people telling stories about their own inside jokes and personal relationships. And you may not catch everything, but you can get that they have this amazing camaraderie.
1: Can I admit something? Yeah. I don't like them.
3: You don't like them?
1: No, I think they kind of suck. Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gold, in particular just get on my nerves. Okay. They're just like, oh, we're destroying everything. Oh, we're so cool. But really... I think I, I, this is what I've been thinking a lot of, a, about a lot since we saw Mash, is I've been thinking about why a lot of this anarchic comedy does not appeal to me mm-hmm. on a fundamental level. Like Animal House, I don't actually like Animal House that oh, much really? either. I
3: love Animal House.
1: I know. I, I like Revenge of the Nerds. I know but... you keep
3: on bringing up Revenge of the Nerds, and <laughs> like it's such a lesser film. I mean, I, like I mean. Uh... Look, I know that you like uh, really comical rape scenes in your I films. I know that's
1: the problem. With uh, that
3: one. So uh, it took me a while to understand and appreciate Animal House, and I'm not saying that this is like you don't get it, but I will say that Animal House and Blues Brothers, those two films changed for me when I saw it in a the theater, and it really, it really became a whole different experience because. There was an energy in the crowd that I never really got when I watched it one-on-one. I also think, to a certain extent, you know, if you tell me, like, pick a movie, Animal House is not the first thing I'm going to put on and any – probably not in the top 20. I think comedy sometimes exists in the moment of that time. Like, that was my dad's movie or that, mm-hmm. you know, like, there's – you know, it captures something so unique um, you know, in some traverse it like Caddyshack, I guess, but Caddyshack is pretty broad, like Revenge of the Nerds. I don't know. I just feel like there are certain movies that capture something. Like I don't relate to that kind of college or anything like that. These characters, I wanted them to be more fun. That's what I kind of wanted the whole time. I'm like, oh, when is it going to get funnier? Yeah. or But I, I found them watchable. I guess that's like that's the difference. Maybe, I, maybe I am agreeing with you. I don't know if I think that they suck. I just wanted them – Well, I wanted more from them.
1: I mean, here's what I see when I see this movie and also what I see when I see Animal House mm-hmm. is I see these guys come in and they're like, we're the rebels. We don't want to obey any authority. We mm-hmm. disobey. We break all the rules. If there's any sort of cultural trope, any sort of standard of behavior, whether it's right. religion or whether it's you know rank order in a military, we don't obey it. And I want to like that, and I want to see that that's, like, cool and fun and rebellious. Yeah. But what I see in M.A.S.H. is not that they, like, destroy all the orders. It's that they just create a new order with themselves at the top. Well, and isn't... that their order is also really patriarchal and misogynist, to oh, be honest. Uh, oh, wait. First and of so, all, yes.
3: I mean, this movie and is so, very misogynist. Right.
1: And so I don't see liberation when I watch M.A.S.H. I just see these two bullies coming in and, like telling women what to do in a different way. Well, but and, above, and it and it, I think that's what's always been this paradox to me at the center of these kind of anarchic 70s comedies is they yeah. don't feel free to me. They are they just feel like a different version of like
3: I oppression. I am I am right there with you. I don't think, but here's the difference in in my opinion and is I don't think that their anarchy is like we're going to level the playing field. I think their anarchy is we're going to do whatever the fuck we want. And these are flawed people who are not good people. And I agree. This movie is incredibly misogynistic. It does not age well at all. You know, whenever anyone wants to like break down the system, you know, or like let's tear it up, they're inevitably tearing it up and then building it up with themselves in a, in a power position. I mean, it just sort of like, I don't want to do that system. I want to do this system. And, and these guys are not like; they don't have any point of view. There's no point of view to them. It's just sort of like I don't want to follow these rules, so I'm going to do it my way. It wasn't like I I need to perform surgery this way or our hospital's not being run this way. It's it's all to be like I want my bunk like this. I want to have this like this. It's it's you know it's so it's so uh, narcissistic.
1: It is, and it you know they you're right. They make themselves into gods. I mean, there's seeds where what. Like, I think it's Hawkeye. He gets a tiny promotion. He's walking through, and all the girls are singing about how wonderful Hawkeye is and how he just deserves to get laid now. And then he points at Hot Lips, and he's like, you, I want to see you naked. And she's not impressed. And, like, he does turn himself into this kind of fiefdom ruler that I don't find fun. Like, I don't like him. And, And to me, all I see when I watch MASH is I see, like, I don't see any freedom for anybody who's a woman. I see, like... If you don't sleep with them and be a cool girl, then they're going to ruin your life, and oh, it makes yeah. me really sad. So I can't watch this movie and be like, "Yeah, get the squares." It just bums me out. I really.
3: don't. Yeah, I guess I never even saw them as getting the squares. I just saw them as dicks, like yeah. dicks that are running. You know, and and there's something more lovable about the dicks in uh, an Animal House. I think they're more anarchy versus uh like new order but at the head of that organization you know is tim matheson mm-hmm. who is an ultimate dick i mean it, like it seems like all these movies in the 70s about these comedies are all about how to get laid right and yeah. and then they also have terrible stereotypes uh whether it comes to race uh and you know and and they you know and it's it's just a weird it's a weird time capsule of where we are and i'm not saying like Chance this movie. It's not woke. It just sort of is like, I don't see how this movie is appealing to women in the 70s because it's not even, it's not empowering there at all. It's, it's kind of oddly abusive at points.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I do like Revenge of the Nerds is because the Omega Moos in that movie, the female sorority of yeah. nerds, are awesome. Okay. And it just makes – I like them. I think they're right. all really cool and weird and they have strange dresses and they play the violin okay. and they also get to have some fun. And there is still the retrograde, like, yeah. like, let's look at the hot girls naked and spy on them, which is a 1,000% just a thing that – I feel like they lifted from M.A.S.H. But there are at least Omega Moos, and maybe I'm just settling. Porky's,
3: too. I mean, Porky's is another, like, right? eye in it, the people's It's
1: all just, like, let's stare at, at chicks naked. I have to say, like, again,
3: I don't want to be, like, putting now culture on a movie and making it make amends for 2020. But I have to say, I did feel, like, a little bit, like, uh, not embarrassed, but just, like, ooh, I don't know if I like this whole idea. Like, you know, they're trying to see, you know— Uh, what Sally Kellerman's pubic hair looks like, essentially. They're trying to
1: see if she's a natural blonde, which as a natural blonde, it's not that hard. Like, you can really just look at somebody's face.
3: I mean, and they set up an elaborate, elaborate situation and, like, basically create theater seating to watch her, you know, get naked. And there was something, like, really... I don't know why it felt... uh, It just felt like she wasn't part of the gang. And so to do that to her... It just felt very... I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm... No, let's listen
1: to the scene and then let's keep talking about it because I think we really have to talk about it. Yeah. You shut up, you twerp!
7: (laughs) This isn't a hospital! It's an insane asylum! And it's your fault! Because you don't do anything to discourage them!
6: What do you want me to do? Uh,
7: Put them under arrest! See what I'm... Corn Marsh will think that they're drunk at home. Look at this. At first they call me a hot lip, and you let them get away with it. And then you let them get away with everything. And if you don't turn them over to the MPs this minute, I, I'm going to resign my commission. And god
4: damn it. Hot lips resign your <laughs> god damn commission.
7: Uh, 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 my commission! <laughs> my commission! My
1: commission!
7: A little more wine, my dear?
1: Yes, please. I mean, so to break it all down, you yeah. know, like Hot Lips has shown up in this town, you know, to work here. She's very happy and yeah. smiley. She's like, you see her smiling. You know, she's introduced with her legs, but she's also just like happy to be there, happy to help, happy yeah. to think. And her big sin, her big sin yeah. is that she doesn't want to have sex with, you know, Trapper or Hawkeye and that she l- likes the religious guy. She th- She's like, he's right. a fine doctor. They're very isolated from everybody. And so they have this affair. And, um, and I can see why they have an affair. And I feel like the film is, you know, saying like, well, it's hypocritical for them to say like, you know, to have all these moral codes and then have yeah. this affair with each other. So they deserve to be exposed because of the hypocrisy of it. Fine. But really, her big sin is just that she likes this one dude and she doesn't like these guys. And so, because. Yeah,
3: man. So she better get served
1: up. (laughs) And so, what really breaks my heart is, you know, in that scene, they all sit down in the the theater seating, like you're talking about, to reveal her as she's taking a shower. And she's, of course, absolutely upset, you know, and screaming and hysterical. I don't, I hate even using the word hysterical, but, you know. Hysterical. yeah, so she runs, you know, into the into um, the colonel's office and he's in bed with a blonde. And, you know, I feel like the defense of this has been that Altman is saying, well, that's just how the military was. It was really misogynistic. I wanted to show how misogynistic it was by having the scene in here. So she basically is – everything she's saying is actually really true. She's saying, like, by letting them call me hot lips and not stopping it, you have helped create this escalation of behavior. Right. You know, I just wanted to be here and do my job. And then she's like, do you need me Just am I quitting my job now? You know. Like, yeah. And he's like, yes, quit your job. And so she loses her job because of these dudes being assholes. Or she's threatened with losing her job. Nobody cares if she loses her job. I mean, what, what bothers me about the whole thing is like – is really that there's the blonde girl in the bed with him. Because I feel like the right. movie is not setting up here's a girl really upset against a man who doesn't care that she's going to lose her job, you know, and is like, yeah. fine, lose your job, you're being the problem. It's that she's contrasted to this blonde girl in the bed who's just, like, going along with it, having sex with the colonel, keeping her mouth shut, looking at this girl who's upset like she's the problem. Yeah, This girl's just siding against her. Yeah. And that her reward is she gets wine poured for her and everything's fine and she never gets stripped naked in public. And there's something about that betrayal there that just breaks my heart and I can't take it.
3: (sighs) There are so many points in this movie that I feel the same way about. Like, I'm just like, it doesn't just sit well with me. And I understand, like, this movie is so slapstick. And then when you're saying, well, but I'm trying to show the realism of what the military is like, it creates a dynamic that I think lessens some things and makes them feel more comical. So it's like you take the weight off and then you show that, like, because that moment... I think, plays as a slapstick moment. Or I don't think that that's like showing the misogyny. I think that that's, I don't think there's any comment on the misogyny here. I think that that's like, we're playing a slapstick moment. We're going to, we ranked up the whole thing. We're going to see her naked in the shower and she's so crazy. And I think her performance there is actually directed to be a lot, to be a little bit over the top. I don't think that that, you know, um, and I understand that she's freaked out, but I also feel like it plays into what you're saying. It makes her, like, hysterical.
1: Right, and they're having her do things like slap away a girl who was offering her a towel. But also, this girl was watching her naked. Like, she's allowed to be mad. Yeah, But they they have her do these little actions that make her the problem. Yes. You know, she didn't want to see that guy's picture of his kid as she was walking in the shower. So she deserves all of this that's coming.
3: But that's, like, kind of the weird thing about this movie is they're not likable characters. They're kind of despicable. And uh, they're easily watchable. And again, I don't know if they're easily watchable because... I know Donald Sutherland and I know Elliot Gould and I know radar Gary Berghoff uh, from, you know, from magic. And I feel like a, a kinship to them because I know them. If it's 1970 and I'm, I've never seen these people or I've just seen them a little bit, maybe it's a, it is a different experience. I And it's very much like a story told by the winners. It's sort of like this Hawkeye story. And in Hawkeye story, she was fucking crazy. And we did this thing and we, and all of a sudden, like when you pick apart the story, you go like, wait, that was weird. Did, did he just say, like, he, like, I guess, like, publicly made, you know, made her get naked in front of everybody? And then, you know, like, like, when you pick up, like, it's like when you hear the story, you're like, ha, 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 Hawkeye, you son of a gun. And then when you look back at it, you're like, huh. And I think that that actually, you know, that kind of energy makes the Hawkeye character in the TV show very different than the Hawkeye character in the movie. The Hawkeye character in the in the movie, he is depressed. And, you know, Alan Alder is a lot more lively. I, I think that this character is like an alcoholic and he's a womanizer and, and just kind of an SOB. And there's something about it like I think that they show his bad shit without any real consequences. They show his bad shit like,
1: and he's pretty cool though. Isn't he yeah, pretty cool? Everybody else sucks worse. Yeah. And and I think like, I mean, when that shower scene happens, I want to just – I just want to see Houlihan go full carry. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens yeah. to Carrie. I want to see Houlihan be like, that's it. I'm killing all you motherfuckers with my mind. Yeah. But the thing is, I don't really buy the argument that Altman is expo- is, is exposing misogyny here for one real final reason that I mm-hmm. think is his tell, which is at the end when he's showing the credits and everybody's getting like their last little glimpse of themselves on screen. The clip that he chooses to show for Sally Kellerman is her getting naked in the shower again. I know. And it's not Sally Kellerman smiling. It's not her laughing. It's not her doing anything normal. It's not her being funny. It's her being stripped naked. You know, that's and a that's, great point. And I feel like when by making that final choice, you're not showing her as the actress. You're showing her as the punchline. And yes. so I don't buy it. I got so interested in this whole character of Sally and why she did this movie and what's happening. in her whole life. I read her biography before this oh, wow. episode so I was like, I'm going to read her autobiography and the understand. The
3: power of you. I skim. Okay, but yeah, reader. but you're but you're also, you're reading, you're watching movies. I, I can't keep up with any of this
1: stuff. <laughs> I just have to take care of a cat, not two uh. kids. It's much easier. Um, because, you know, I feel for Sally Kellerman is the thing. And, like, Sally Kellerman has defended this character a lot, you know, which I think she deserves to defend it. You know, she got nominated for an Oscar for this. This role meant a lot to her. By the way, I
3: have to say, can we just talk brass tacks for a second? Do you think she's worthy of a nomination for this movie? No, it's
1: really strange.
3: It's, not a good, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very flimsy part that I don't think has any real depth. I think I can't track it. I, you know. I mean, I think
1: it's just a sign of – to me, I think the whole thing is just a sign of how few good parts there were for actresses.
3: And how the power of a good movie – Right, Right? Like, you know, sometimes the power of a good movie, like everyone gets nominated with the exception of like Parasite, Uh, you know, uh, but it's like sometimes you can kind of like scoop up a bunch of nominations because she is really the only woman in the film of note. Of course, you have to give it to her, you know.
1: Exactly. And I feel like for Sally Kellerman, for her point of view, you know, what she talks about a lot is. She always felt really uncomfortable. She always felt really self-conscious trying to be an actress in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. She's five foot ten and a half. She says she was really chubby as a kid. And so she never felt attractive or fun. And then when she starts trying to be an actress here, you know, she's older by the time she gets this part. Yeah. She hasn't had a lot of luck. And everything she's getting offered is like bimbo girlfriend, bimbo girlfriend, bimbo girlfriend. So to be offered a part where she at least got to scream, right. you know, where she at least got to contribute to the plot in some real way besides yeah. being a girlfriend – I think it meant a lot to her. And I think Altman, you know, that, was, that shower scene we just heard, her screaming was supposed to be her last scene. She was supposed to scream. He was supposed to be like, fine, you're fired. And then she was supposed to go on and leave the film. But Altman really liked her performance so much that he was like, let's keep you in the film, which is how you get that third act where she's suddenly now just like. A cheerleader? Yeah, where they just don't completely change her character, and it bu- and that bubs me out too. Like I I like that he respected Sally enough that he wanted to keep her around. Yes, but then you turn the Hot Lips character. I hate that even calling her Hot Lips because she doesn't like that name. Right, but that the way she winds up fitting in with the group is mm-hmm. just by having sex with Duke. And then she's like kind of like they're like, Well, you're fine, but now you're just a dumb cheerleader. And so she's watching the football game and she's cheering and they're just making fun of her and she can't win then either. She tries to get along and they're like, Well, you still suck. But she she, she gives up everything that she kind of was at the beginning of the movie. You know, I'm smart, I know what I'm doing, I'm here to help. I have like right. a you know, I'm I'm responsible and I believe in the military to be like I'm this bimbo and they're still like, ah, screw you.
3: Well as we're talking about Sally, I want to talk about another character in the film that also I think gets the same kind of treatment, which is this uh, you know this character you know who's called Spearchucker, right it's it's sort of like, you know, I've heard Altman go, well, I you know, it's because you know, uh, you know, the book was racist and we're not, you know, we're not racist. So we wanted to change it. And like the explanation is like, well, I was called spirit Chucker. He says it so politely, like, because I threw the javelin in, in college. I'm like, wait, what is going on here? Like, it just, it, it really, that unnerved me too. It's sort of like, you're dealing with these very heavy things, misogyny and racism, but then you're kind of like, like sanding the edges down on them. And I think, for right, they're
1: offering a solution that is a bullshit solution, yes, just yes. play along, it's fine, tell everybody it's fine,
3: yes, and it and that kind of like really those are the moments that are kind of bumming me out. And I think that both performances oddly become these weird stereotypes. I think, uh, the Spear Chucker character is more aware, like he's you know, but yet. Like the other team, when they see him, they go, oh, you know, it's like, it's weird when you have so many white faces in a movie or so many male faces in a movie. And then you drop in these two and then you kind of really spin them in ways that are very base, I think.
1: Yeah. And even this character of of Hojun, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of Korean Butler, martini trainer, yeah. learning English, being kind of torn between these two parental figures. One of them wants to teach him about Playboy magazine. The other one wants to teach him about the Bible. And know, by the
3: way, he was a big part of the novel, right, Hojun?
1: He was. And he dies in the novel. He dies in the novel when he. they make it clear that like he gets enlisted in the war, which you have that scene here where they're trying to see yeah. if they can keep him out and they can't.
3: But, but then he comes back to the MASH unit as a casualty in the book, which is kind of an interesting, that's actually at least a story like, but you take it away. I mean, you make him like this odd butler character and it's, and it's a little, it's all this stuff. It's like, these are the three characters that are not white men and they're all pretty stereotypical and, and there's really no dynamic point of view shown. And what you're saying to me is like, well, we wanted to show this, but you're showing it. But then what do you – are you commenting on it? I don't know if you're commenting on it. You're just doing it. And i that's a tricky place to be. Like, just showing the thing without commenting on it, then, you're, then what's the difference?
1: Yeah, and I, it makes me really curious. I mean, it is fascinating to talk about this film after we did Parasite because, yeah. you know, basically Bong Joon-ho grew up in the aftermath of this mash. You yeah. know, like, growing up in the aftermath of having this occupation here, watching a lot of the American movies as a way of teaching himself about yeah. American movies – and, and having this strange dynamic that you see here in this film, you know, between like the American soldier sort of coming in and trying to boss around and tell people what to believe in, in his own right. country. And I, f- I do find that strange. And it's, I wish there was a comment because I feel like the film is dancing around so many comments. I mean, even the name of Tom Skerritt, you know, there's these kind of mild illusions that his character, Duke Forrest, Augustus Bedford, Duke Forrest, um, is racist. Mm. But then he seems to maybe get over it a little bit. But by the way, did you catch that connection to Forrest Gump? No. Okay, Tom Skerritt's character, Augustus Bedford Duke Forrest, is named after the same KKK guy that Forrest Gump is in Forrest Gump. Oh, that's hilarious! I right? Didn't really that. Yeah. I feel like, honestly, in the novel, Forrest Gump seems a lot like MASH. It's very oh, you're episodic. right yeah. It's very like, how do we make this into a movie? Let's just go for it. Let's just go for broke. And you know, yeah. And in neither one, am I sure that I know at all what they're doing by naming their character Forrest. I mean, that was happening. With the Sally Field character when he was like, she named me after this guy, just (laughs) to remind me that sometimes people do dumb things. You're like, okay, I guess that's a comment Uh, on the KKK. Yeah,
3: there we go. Nailed it.
1: There we go. And here you just have Tom Skerritt, you know, making fun of Yankees. But but what is it all for?
3: I don't know, because the third act culminates in... A football game. Yeah. Which kind of dilutes everything because it's sort of like, by the way, interesting side note, this movie takes place, obviously, in the Korean War during wartime. And the only time you ever hear a gun in the entire film is the referee's gun in the football scene. Oh, no way. interesting. I Um, heard that if
1: you listen to that scene closely, you can also hear somebody say the word fuck, which might have been the first time. First time. time. I couldn't hear it, but did you hear it?
3: Yes. uh, It's the first time that that was ever used. In dialogue in a feature film So 1970, there you go, mark it down people Save it for your trivia nights
1: Can I just say though, I mean When I hear this football song, the one that they play in in the film Anyway, that song makes yes. me want to die. I mean, because well, I like, feel like the entire last half of this movie is just that song on repeat, and then a lot of football nonsense that I can't follow.
3: But by the way, that's the end of Animal House. I mean, that kind yeah. of parade and that crazy music, and it's you know, but and you know, and obviously, Longest Yard comes out in nineteen seventy four. Uh, you know, but a culminating in a football game is sort of like, well, what's the comment there? Like at the end of the day, the only thing that's important is just the money. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know what. Uh, I don't know what we're getting to. And by d- eliminating that subplot that we talked about, we, even with the uh, the Ho John uh, subplot, like we just kind of just make it into a thing. And, and I think you leave the film going like, oh, that was fun. Like, And and when I talk to a lot of people on that little texting app thing I've been doing, people are like, I hate this movie, but the football game was fun. The football game was fun. And it's one of those movies where I think if you leave on um, a good note, you sometimes forget everything else. Because the football game, is i mean it's like oh, this is this now like it's about a football game and by the way how did you miss the fuck because it's like in the huddle they go right there he's like, i'm gonna rip your fucking head off or oh it's really like, that's when it that's happens that's what it is yeah it's like he's like i'm gonna tear your fucking head off or something like Whoa. in that moment maybe i'm yeah. just
1: immune to fucks
3: maybe <laughs> you know it was a funny moment because i didn't capture like oh the fuck i just i just thought i laughed at that idea of just like of you know uh that was i think it was uh walt uh, the Painless Pole, another... great, But but that's another, like, I'm okay with... Maybe am I okay with Polish jokes? I don't know. Uh, but it says, like, you know, he he's the one who says, like, all right, bud, your head's coming fucking off. It just seemed really intimidating in that moment. Uh, it made me laugh. Um, I mean,
1: yeah, but it feels like the football game is just stuck on this movie with a wad of chewing gum. Yeah. It's like, here we go. I will say, I, there's a lot I don't like about this yeah. film. I do like the surgery scenes, honestly. Yeah. I do like the approach to carnage in the war this is a really bloody film but i I like how matter of fact it is and how you never have you know you could say that like mash maybe the tv show is like a precursor to things like er yeah but not here you know here the patients none of it none of them is like this is a chess prodigy who happens to have you know this rare form of lupus and he has yeah. to get better in order to play in the competition like there's no emphasis on the patients and what they need and who they are and how they factor into the plot they right. are completely anonymous and it's such a bold choice that I respect. You know, there's yeah. no like pathos with which patient, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Oh, we have to get it home to see his like cat before his cat dies of cancer. I don't know. But the patients are just here. And it's, I think the anonymity and the endless bodies that are just always on the table, always on the table, always on the table. I really respect Blood's that approach. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I respect that re- approach a lot because it does, that feels the most true to me of anything in the film.
3: Well, I think that's the most. Uh, engaging part of the movie like I love the operating scenes and, and the, the energy in those operating rooms but again that even loses some of its um play for me because in the moments I've seen MASH that's so part of it and great production design on the TV show that it looks just like the movie and you know um, I mean I think you know the one thing that we can both agree on is Stallone is great in this um, <laughs> it's one of his best roles what? Uh, Stallone is uncredited as one what? of the soldiers in this movie he yes. is? yes uh, so, you know, Lord of, Lord of Flashbush era, Stallone is in God. this movie.
1: Young Stallone was just the most beautiful man. He's
3: Really attractive guy. I mean, um, who's
1: more beautiful, you think? Young Stallone or young Christopher Walken?
3: I'm going to go with Stallone.
1: I think I'll take Walken just because right, he's taller. Yeah. All right. I, I do appreciate the scene where, um, to me, the thing that Trapper does the best that I like is when he punches um, the doctor for blaming Bud Court for killing a man. Yes, and it feels so telling that when he punches the doctor for blaming Bud Court, you know, mm-hmm. right before Bud Court is going to go make Harold a mod and become a big star, he punches him into a stack of tampons. It, that felt very pointed to me. Right, like right. I'm not just going to punch you. I'm going to punch you into feminine products. That's what you get, man. You're going to have feminine products all over you in boxes. Uh. <laughs> I mean, to me, that that's like they put effort. Into putting something low grade sexist into this movie.
3: Well, I mean, sure, yeah. I mean, I think it's it. Again, this movie walks a really weird line. It's just sort of like it's lazy at points, and you know, you have Altman who's going like the book is lazy, and the book is not good, and the book is racist, and and it's sort of. I think there are things that you get that are like that. Production design tampons. That's on an accident. Then there are things that you're going to get in the dialogue that is going to be something that is improvised, that is found in the moment, and of an era and of a time and people going I feel like this is what I would say to this character and then all of a sudden that's creating a narrative that maybe wasn't already there. I mean the screenwriter says basically not a word of my script was used in this film although he gladly uh you know was excited when the the film was nominated for a best screenplay.
1: Yeah, he was the only one I think who won an Oscar, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. He won an Academy Award for a screenplay but he told L.A. Cool there's not a word I wrote on that screen. So I think you have a you have a real um Mishmash, and we've talked about this in the past. Like, you know, Kubrick working with uh, different people on uh, Spartacus brings out the best. And here, I think what happens is you bring out a little bit of a, a jumbled mess. And I think, you know, I I really like Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, and they, you know, obviously use improv, and they're building things and making things better. But I always feel like at a certain point they have something to say right they craft it to make a point whether that's sausage party or neighbors there is there is a um there's a point of view that they're trying to do interview all these movies um and i feel like this movie just kind of lacks that it's like it let all the improv it let everything be so sloppy that didn't kind of shore it up and i think in 1970 it was so exciting to be sloppy it was so exciting to see it all like this that now we're a little bit more discerning and it doesn't necessarily pay off. And I can have these characters. I can have this misogyny. But like, let me understand as a filmmaker what you're trying to do here. And I think it was a little bit, not even too clever. I don't think it's too clever. I just think it's a little, it's a little sloppier than it should have been.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if there is a guiding ethos in this film, Mm -hmm. it's just that Altman believes in a very us versus them world. You know, it's right. it's who he is as a person. I mean, he could not make this film if he wasn't allowed to always be mad at the Fox executives. Right. He had to make it that they were always the problem and that he was always the good guy. That's how he lives. And Zanuck was like, you know, I think I really respect his independence, but it is not a good trait that he always had to be pissed off at somebody. Well, and the anger, I think, is what I feel here more than anything else.
3: I also feel like there's an element of it's war nobody changes. You're still, yeah, you're, you're like, you're not this glorified, amazing person because it's war. You're still the certain person that would get drunk in a bar or say this thing to a girl or do this thing here. And there's something like valiant about that as well. It's like, you're not heroes. And I'm not saying that people, I'm not saying that, but there is an element of showing the casual nature of soldiers and how you are who you are, and you happen to be in this greater service and doing this greater good. And because you are sacrificing yourself and doing this amazing honor for your country, it doesn't mean that you are an honorable person per se. And that is the strongest point that I can feel like he's making is like, yeah, they, they are the same people and then and they shouldn't be treated any differently and they're dirty and they're messy and don't hold them high. They, they're not like great people. Uh, and maybe that's from his experience of being in the war too. It's like, you know, the people are people. That's and- so
1: funny. That's like, the thought that you're describing is the same thought that I had this weekend when I was on a plane and I was watching the new Terminator movie. Dark is it Fate. Dark yeah. Fate?
2: Yeah. Sure. Uh, because
1: you know, like the new Terminator, he's like a shapeshifter. Yeah. Of course. Um, Of of course. And his thing is he keeps shape-shifting into like military men, border patrol people. Right. And it makes him invisible because he can keep like – he shape-shifts into a border patrol person. And they're like, oh, thank you for your service, sir. And everybody just worships him because of the – Because of the – The uniform. The uniform. And I felt like that film was making kind of that same statement. Yeah, that
3: opening scene, just because he's in that uniform, he gets off and does it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly.
3: Exactly. By the way, that
1: was the most boring movie. I can't believe I sat through that whole thing. But Mackenzie Davis's arms are amazing.
3: Well, hey, look, there's one thing there.
1: I will say there is one other subplot in this film that I do think is pretty funny, and it is when the film takes jabs at religion, Mm -hmm. especially in the really ineffectual priest who's always praying over people who are dying, who's doing nothing. The last time you see the priest in the film, um, he's praying over a jeep because nobody cares about what he has to do anymore. That that's the quiet intellectual humor that I that I appreciate in this film. I mean, we should talk about that suicide scene, though, because where we have Altman doing exactly the Last Supper, doing his big religious statement at the center of this film. I thought that scene was actually pretty funny until the very end.
3: Um, It also is based on this weird thing. Here's a man who, uh, you know, he's having trouble getting an erection, so he thinks he's gay. So if he's gay, he must commit suicide. Another oddly problematic That's issue. True. He but, calls
1: himself a victim of latent homosexuality. Yeah.
3: So, and then they, and so the only way out, because what what would be worse than being gay? Nothing. He must kill himself, and then they create this elaborate ruse. And I, this is what I do like about the movie. Is like this sequence is. A fun sequence, like, oh, pretending this guy's going to commit suicide. I don't love the reason into it, I don't love the reason out of it, but I do love all the pomp and circumstance around it when they go talk to the priest. Is this okay? Can we do this? There's some really fun stuff and playful stuff here.
1: Yeah, that they look like they're drinking really awful wine, too. They're drinking, yeah. like, rosé. I mean, white Zinfandel religion sure. drinking something sweet. I mean, to me, one of the details that I do appreciate about it, just because it's a little bit of a jab, is that when Hawkeye suddenly wears it this guy might think he's he's yeah. hot. He's so flustered by being a sex object that I'm kind of like, "That's what you get, man."
3: I love. By the way, I need to give a shout out to this guy who is committing suicide, John Shuck, who, uh, as we all know, and uh, is Bach's brother, Cybok from uh, Star Trek V: uh, The Final Frontier. One of the best, uh, great roles. Really solid uh, performance. And like, and then I feel like they do this. They do this whole ruse. There's some really uh, pretty imagery in it. And then it just basically like, all right, now go in there and have sex with him and he'll be back. And the sheet rises up to the top. And it's like, it just felt like a very kind of a moment. And then he comes back the next day as if nothing happened. Uh, And it seems to me like what I thought I missed from that was razzing him that he was trying to kill himself. Like they don't give him any grief. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, you're back. And it's. I was like, oh, but that doesn't seem in in play with everything else. I don't know.
1: I don't know. It does creep me out how... That girl has to be talked into doing it.
3: Oh, I mean, of course. I yeah. Mean,
1: and then, I mean, in like kind of the farewell, where he was like, You see him and he's fine. He's alive and not even mentioning it. You see her and she's leaving the camp. Now it's very yes. convenient. Like, yeah. you did it. Now you're gone. Yeah.
3: You basically like, No, she's not only leaving the camp, she's going home. She's discharged and so happy. Like, mm. I got fucked. So, oh my gosh. What a blessing it was for me to fuck this guy because now I leave. It's not that I'm being discharged, it's that I got so – I went to the bone zone with uh, Cybok. Right, and um, that
1: like the way he kind of like frames everybody the morning after. Yeah. He really is like – he gets Hawkeye kind of the hero shot. Congrats, Hawkeye. You arranged this thing where like this girl had sex with him. Do you He's think well that, that whole
3: section where they go to Japan is just to give them a really heroic moment with the kid? I mean, it's like – Like that section in Japan is like, I mean, it's very much like the books we're talking about, like MASH goes to Madrid. But, um, you know, it's this like odd little moment. It's this like odd moment where they're, you know, they're there with golf clubs. They're not taking, they of course take nothing seriously, but then the child and then they take it seriously. Is that like just maybe in there to kind of just bolster up like they are good guys. They actually do care.
1: I guess so. I mean, they do that Godfather 2 thing of like blackmailing um Blackmailing the guy by taking pictures of him with a prostitute. Yeah. Yeah, they saved a kid. I mean, it just felt like,
3: that, let's yeah, watch
1: them march around in shorts and have everybody tell them they're right.
3: I know. Yeah, that blackmailing that guy was, yeah, that made me... Um, I en- Again, I enjoyed that moment for a certain degree because I felt like... I thought the actor played that really well. Like, to, just... The panic look on his face, uh, but yeah, but, yeah, oh boy.
1: It's true. And then, you know, it bums me out that they get back from Japan, and the general has been like, I have heard the complaints of Houlihan, that there are things happening. I would like to investigate these complaints. I actually take them seriously. And then as soon as he learns that there could be a football game where he makes money, he's just like, hot lips, screw her. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, oh, bro. If Maybe if the movie didn't recognize so much that this sucked before dismissing it, it right. would bother me. It, yeah. Then, would I rather they just completely ignore it? I don't know.
3: Yeah. I know, I know, I know. It's complicated, Amy. I I will say this. We talk about this movie and there's so many things out there. I do feel like the benefit of this is it is laying the groundwork for so much of 70s entertainment, of of counterculture, of the way that we see... uh, heavy situations like you talk about er we talk about longest yard we talk about animal house talk about revenge of the nerds when you take all those movies like those are very different films and it made stars of these people bud court and uh and obviously Elliot gould's star explodes and donald sutherland continues to grow like and sally kellerman as well it's like it does something good this is like this is like a the equivalent of a paintball uh gun it's one shot and it's messy and it gets all over the place. And in a good way, it it affects cinema. This movie, I think now in talking about it, I appreciate this movie more than the movie that I watched.
1: That's true. That's true. I
3: appreciate what it did.
1: Well, I mean, then you must appreciate this most of all, which is perhaps the best version of Suicide is playing Painless, which people might have heard if they saw a little movie called The Blair Witch 2.
3: I, thought, I <laughs> thought you might bring some bullshit to the table. That's a so so bullshit that's Carolyn Manson. I am going to up the ante here and say this. You may think that MASH was too old for you, but MASH, the TV show, is too old for you. Mm-hmm. But I found something that I think... You as a child would love It's called Mush It's a cartoon <laughs> parody of MASH Which aired on Saturday mornings During ABC from 1975 what? to 1976 It's an all dog cast Modeled off the show's heroes what? Uh, It's Bullseye instead of Hawkeye Cold lips instead of Hot lips Colonel Flake instead of Colonel Blake And Mush stood for mangy Unwanted shabby heroes Take a look at the uh, little <laughs> scene from Mush <laughs>
5: came in over the wireless oh my goodness sona! when are you gonna buy some new glasses <laughs> either glasses or a seeing eye cat <laughs> oh 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 this is terrible what's so terrible sir i got a message here from general people and he has ordered me to fly back to his headquarters for a staff conference <laughs> that means you'll miss the party sir
3: there you go mush wow only one year on the air um, you know, this
1: got me thinking. If only the Ghostbusters cartoon had been a bigger hit, maybe we could get Ghostbusters on the list, and you could be happy.
3: Oh my gosh! Well, I didn't like the Ghost the real Ghostbusters cartoon you were talking about. You
1: didn't about? like that? You didn't like the Slimer?
3: I liked it okay. I was never like I was never all in on the real Ghostbusters because I wanted to see my characters. I didn't want to see these bizarro like Egon with like a punk hairdo bullshit you um, wow. never look like that You're a real that. purist I am indeed I am But I would buy the playset Because at least that's You know at least I could get My uh, firehouse
1: Is it trolling Paul To say that my favorite part of MASH Is when it ends <laughs> Because that is true it, It's I, a I, great I,
3: ending It is a great <laughs> ending It's a very meta cool Big ending
1: yeah, where all of a sudden the loudspeaker goes from just, like, describing John Wayne movies to describing that the movie itself that we yeah, have been watching, watching. or suffering through at parts, um, that horrible football scene, is now over. And it, I like that it synergizes the two. To me, that is groundbreaking comedy.
3: I think you're right. This movie has so many great choices in it. It just I don't think the, you know, the sum of its parts uh, are, I don't know, however that phrase goes. I just think that it doesn't all coalesce.
2: Well, Paul,
1: let's talk to somebody who is actually on this set. Let's talk to the one and only Tom Skerritt. He's in this film as Captain Augustus Bedford, Duke Forrest. Tom, welcome to Unspooled. We're so happy to have you here for MASH to just talk to you about Altman, talk about his technique, about the set, about the film.
4: Uh, but for Robert Altman, I don't know that I would be in the business.
1: Really? Why do you say that? I mean, because you were acting before.
4: One thing leads to another, as you may know. You know, you keep moving along, and you know that's all I've ever known is just keep moving, man, just keep moving. And I was an English major at UCLA who saw Citizen Kane, which is, you know, one of the great, if not the greatest, film made in the 20th century. And I said, I want to write and direct to that level. So I'm learning how to write. Screenplay, and I thought, well, if I'm writing for a screenplay, I gotta know how to write for an actor. I've already done editing in college, Uh, so I I thought, well, the only way I'm gonna know how to write for an actor is to do it. So I wound up being a good actor, and people hired me to be a dollar ninety eight movie that had Robert Redford and Sidney Pollack in it. As far as Alma is concerned, he was a TV director who I met somewhere in the neighborhood, UCLA, or wherever, wherever I met him. I don't remember, but he invited me to watch him direct and invited me to, yeah, if I want to mentor, mentor with him, and I would go to his office and watch him cut films and have him explain the way he, why he shot that and how to elicit laughter from people in the most obscure ways and how to be... Uh, a director like him so he called up one day and said I got a picture to direct and I'd love you to be in it and that was MASH
1: so you had a crash course in even his style his intellectual approach his creativity before you got to set which must have been such an easier fit than people who are sort of more confused
4: yes he was keeping me informed all the way through shooting MASH uh, you know they, they were wanted to fire him at one point and studio just thought they couldn't cut this film together and I just had the confidence that he, he had it, he, I, having been around him long enough, that this guy's got a lot of material to come up with. He'll get a narrative out of it that maybe is not the script necessarily. But the script was a solid script. Not a great one, but it doesn't have to be great. It just has to be solid and also uh, flexible. We uh, did not reference the screenplay itself Literally, we just sort of referenced it as a guide, and and, uh, uh, he and I decided somehow or another I would play a southern bigot (laughs) 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 to poison the soup, I guess. It was instinctive. It was uh, impulsive teaching that I got from him in terms of how to go about making a movie had that same quality about him but he was much more of a uh, visual guy in terms of framing and painting he was an artist, he's, an, he's a, definitely an artist between the two of them I, I, um, I have some magic in me uh, from them that's the way I put it is the magic that they gave me
1: I was noticing with Mesh that you know, unlike Gold, unlike Sutherland you brought four years of military service with you to the set I wonder. I mean, you must have to unlearn what it's really like to be in the real military.
4: Well, I had four years, yeah, right out of high school. So I was still a kid growing up, uh, learning to. I can't always mess around because I was in high school. I I wasn't uh, very attentive. That really, I think, is a lot of what went in the mesh. You know, I just think you bring a lot of your high school, you're, you're messing around. And the talent that goes that somehow or other encases it creatively in a way that sells. Uh, I would have, I've had that good fortune of, uh, if that makes sense. I always come back to that—the good fortune I've had.
1: Were there days on the mesh set where you thought, "This is exactly it. This is the type of art I want to be creating"?
4: <sighs> oh, the whole thing was that way for me. I just knew there was something going on here that. I could not verbalize. I, I just you know, recognized very early on because of Altman that the creative thing is not, it's something inexplicable. You can't explain it. You just simply have to trust it. Uh, he made everybody feel as though they were part of that, that. They had a contribution that they gave. So I saw all of this uh, going on and uh, how he shared it with me. So it's really why actors love to work with Altman was, it was just uh, hey, just try it out. Let's see if it fits. Okay, we got to tighten that a little bit there, and maybe the pants are a little too long. And, but just try it out. He was that kind of guy.
1: What about? I mean, I'm imagining when the movie came out, you must have met a lot of vets. What did they think of the film? Well,
4: everybody that uh, saw the film loved the film, and the ones that were most interesting to run into were uh, doctors. I said it's just the way we were we are in Korea or Vietnam you know they just had, you had to mess you had to have a sense of humor to go and get through all of this stuff, you know uh, the horror of it
1: I guess that would make sense. it's hard for me to understand I've never served or, or been a doctor so i, I... I'm so curious about what it would be, that mentality, what it would feel like.
4: Well, I think if you were, had that intensity every day, you know, it's, there's a emotional harangue about it, you know, you're, you're, you're writing a, a letter to your wife or children saying, you know, I'm over here and uh, it rained a lot today, and you don't talk about those things that really, uh, how you have to save a life, or see a life you can't save. All that stuff that is so hard for any, any doctor to have to deal with. And it's hard for any of us who have never been in that kind of a situation to really know what that is.
1: You're right, I can't think of a time in film where people who knew what that was like would get to see themselves on film because usually war is always portrayed, especially if like before then as kind of bloodless and heroic.
4: There's a way, actually, probably to break that thing that creates post-traumatic stress, which is 24-7 intensity of, of surveillance, of being on guard, you know, all the time. Like a lot of these guys, when they went over to Iraq and Afghanistan, you don't have guys, the enemy in uniform. You don't know who the enemy is. Somebody in the marketplace, you know, a woman strapped with... Look at something to blow up. I mean, in a war where there's uniforms between them and us, there's a clarity of what you have to deal with. And in a war like we have now these days, when you don't know who's who's got what, who's going to blow up a lot, it's 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 you're you're on guard all the time. So uh, you know, it's quite a different thing. It's not. It's hard to find any humor in any of that stuff.
1: Well, I'm wondering how, like, you. And Altman must have felt, you know, you've made this movie and you've had to convince the studio that this is how it should be. And it seems like at times it got really hard. And then it comes out and you win the Palme d'Or, you get these Oscar nominations. What did that vindication feel like for both of you?
4: Well, for Altman, it was a huge vindication. He, uh, The studio did was not going to release it uh, the writer of the screenplay wanted his name taken off of it, and uh, he was able to get it screened in New York at one theater. The studio said, "All right, you got to get one screening. The review, uh, the critics are going to come. That's it. Just critics. Just one night. You're done." Well, the next day after the screening, and Bob told me about that. He was sitting in the theater, and nobody was reacting at all. Reviewer, we didn't know at the time that reviewers don't. If if it just screening for his critics, they will not let other critics know what, how they're f- feeling about the film. So it was just quiet, and he felt like, oh my God. He went out in the lobby and, and it just <laughs> didn't know what to do. Until next day, the reviewers were raving about it, saying this is the future of film. And so it was the masterpiece for him, as it turned out. But he had taken privilege with the f- script and saw what the writer had in there that the writer did not know. Like what the re- director, Alien, what really did with a, a decent script that was originally intended to be a $2 million film with no director. <laughs> you know, and MASH was sort of the same thing. It was some director that they got out of a long list of directors who were not interested in doing MASH or whatever it was. You know, there was just this list of names of directors that people, that studios go through. They never know quite what the end result's going to be from that director, but they're going to have to lean heavily on trusting that person to do something that a businessman you know, as a studio executive would understand. And that's the one thing I learned from all these good directors that I've worked with is they just take the They take the risk of possibilities, you know, and test the audacity of their imagination, given that the imagination was encouraged by the screenplay, always the screenplay.
1: It does. And I mean, what interests me about your career as well is that you've worked with so many directors who from the outside, I picture them as being radically different. You've worked with Cronenberg and Zemeckis and Eastwood. Is there anything that all good directors have in common?
4: I don't think so. <laughs> Except they like to make movies. I, I remember uh, Hal Ashby was a very dear friend of mine, and uh, he was a Academy Award-winning uh, editor turned director. And I learned all as much from him as in a different way than I did from Ashby. So, and I because I met Ashby around, Hal Ashby around the time that MASH came out. So. I was able to mentor with both Hal Ashby as in the cutting room, and when that is the final edit, by the way, in the cutting room. The script says one thing: the edit says something else. Ashby and, and Altman are the two guys that I really had learned an awful lot from in terms of taking, risking the possibility and taking these you know, uh, shooting a bad day of footage because it just didn't happen, didn't work out that they couldn't work it out, whatever it was, either one of them. But there was always something out of that that one day of footage that really worked extremely well in the editing room. Something that you know is going to work and no one else seems to agree with you, but somehow or another the public ultimately, it tells you that you've done a good job.
1: Were you relieved that Duke Forrest wasn't a character in the TV show?
4: You know, I had a conversation with Altman prior to finish. the. the you know, I remember having that conversation with him about before the mash was finished, I said, uh, he and I were talking, I'm saying, I know this is really gonna be something else, something quite special. And I bet two years from now, they're gonna make a series out of it. And he kind of (laughs) smiled, I remember, he laughed, and says, yeah, God, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) And that was that. Two years later, I got a call, they were gonna do the series to ask me if I would play that character, which was not a real likable character. Um, and I really felt sort of an allegiance to what Altman had done with the movie, and I just did not think the TV series uh, would be as good as it turned out to be. You know, it's hard to do that for, as it turned out, 11 years I think that series was on. But So they eliminated the character because I didn't want to do it. There wasn't a principal character MASH was more that, that film of Donald and, and Elliot than it was my character. My character was sort of the pain in the ass guy, you know, who uh, uh, didn't always say the right things. <laughs> so, I don't know if that would have worked on television show.
1: Fair enough. Oh, by the way, I did want to ask, what was Sally Kellerman like? Were you guys able to become friends on the set?
4: Oh, yeah. She was just wonderful. I had worked with her before on a television show. Some I don't remember the show, but she was just terrific. Just terrific. I, I just... I, I can't complain about anybody I've ever worked with. Uh, I've just been fortunate for Helen Mirren. I had a chance to work with her on an HBO movie along with um, uh, Max von Sydow. And I just... uh I've never had anybody, worked with anybody that I, I didn't uh, have a high regard for.
0: Well, Tom, thank you
1: again for taking time out of your day to talk to us here at Unspooled. We really appreciate it.
4: Oh, you're so welcome. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and I, I, I enjoyed your questions.
3: All right, Amy, what were people thinking? Obviously, won the Palme d'Or. This movie is beloved. It's making a ton of money. It's It's... Nominated for awards. What are people saying?
1: I mean, people loved it. I mean, Pauline Kael. Pauline uh, Kael there we go. worshipped this film. Pauline Kael thought it was great. She said it was marvelously unstable. She called it a tale of chivalry and said it was generous and romantic, none of which I understand at all. None of which I understand at all on this film it, slightly. It seems to be very like selfish and unromantic, but fine. Uh, okay, Pauline. I think that's uh, the craziest I've ever thought she was. But a few people didn't like it. The biggest of which was Richard Corliss um, of the National Review. Uh, he wrote an article that was actually not in the National Review. He wrote it for the New York Times called, I Admitted I Didn't Like MASH. Oh, wow. Yeah, because people were squabbling over it. He said, the critical barometer has varied only from rave to pure idolatry, with the implication in many reviews that anyone who has reservations about the film is humorless, uptight, and pro-war. But before MASH escapes the mundane considerations of movie criticism for the rarefied realm of film history – a minority report may be in order, which I love I love his whole setup here because yeah. he's saying like, you you fuckers are going to put this on the AFI list. Let yeah. me tell you why you're wrong now before this happens because nobody wants to really question this movie. Okay. He says, if our laughter at this practical joke sticks in our throats, if indeed we laugh at all, it may not be because we, like Major Burns, can't take a joke. Perhaps we simply don't like to see human beings, even self-righteous or short-sighted ones, tortured in such a smug, pseudo-moralistic way. In what other movies have we been expected to sympathize with the torturers, however likable, and hoot at the victims, however virile? The critics have gone for M.A.S.H. for a lot of the same reasons they and the public latched on to The Graduate. It's a comedy that looks different. The Graduate wasn't the best Generation Gap comedy of the 60s. It was the first. And M.A.S.H. is neither a great anti-war comedy nor even an anti-war comedy. Like The Graduate, critics have reviewed a film they wanted to see instead of the film in front of them.
3: Well, I mean, that that seems to be, like, what we're talking about. You know, it's sort of like these people who are able to kind of get, you know, see a little bit past the film.
1: Yeah, past, like, the freshness, past the yeah. idea that this is, like, an untouchable, uncriticizable yeah. A film That you just have to like Otherwise you're the nerd it's, He makes it sound like If you were a critic in 1970 You were being bullied Just to shut up and play along Right
3: exactly we agree all like this And that's fine And yeah
1: Yeah fine it's great Fine yeah. is great And I love that he's making This distinction between Being good or being the first You know And, and that he linked The Graduate in Because you know I have a lot of complicated Feelings on that Yeah And then it did start Like this whole back and forth In the letters to the editor section Of the New York Times You know A lot of women wrote in And complained about the feminism At the time You know, because they weren't dumb, too. They knew. They could see it. You know, here's a woman who wrote in in 1971, and she said, Vincent Canby's inclusion of MASH on his 10 best list is further disheartening evidence that movie critics see nothing wrong with dehumanizing women in the name of humor. Women in MASH are regarded not as people, but as collections of sexual parts to be patronized and humiliated for laughs. That the blatant misogyny of this film has been so blandly accepted by critics is scary. That Canby should call it, quote, unequivocally funny is obscene. Interesting. Yeah. So I I like finding moments to point out that people were not more chill necessarily. No, but that's for what it is.
3: Yeah, I really appreciate that.
1: No, Uh, which which brings us back to Sally Kellerman, because I think a lot of why people made the point that it was okay is because Sally Kellerman made a point of telling them that it was fine. You know, the joke is on her, and she's saying she's okay with it. This is her on a talk show.
6: No, go ahead. You said the movie Mesh.
7: Did, oh, you're cringing. The movie
1: Mesh no, me did more for me than any
7: man. And
6: I, I and wondered about well, that. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm not kidding. I had a.
7: Did I, did I quote green. it wrong? Or?
6: Oh, no, did more for me than any man. I said, kiddingly, to your woman today, but uh, she asked me if I got tired of answering, you know, since matches is such to hit the same kind of question. So I said, well. You do get a little humiliated that quotes that move from the New York Times to Time magazine to who knows where about change in transits. MASH did more for me than any man. No. Oh. I had a fantastic time doing mash and I really loved it, but I I have a man that does more for me than any mash or something. Oh I really do. <laughs> so it's the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really you know, I mean I keep wanting to be serious, but I can't I can't no, seem you... to get to it. I mean, I'd like to just complete one sentence. Which is, uh, I meant that it was a very freeing, a positive experience, and Bob Altman is a fantastic man, you know, very loose and creative and, and able to bring things out of you as an actress and give you the feeling of taking a chance, whether you're six feet eleven or you're five feet two or you're fat or whatever you are. Just, I mean, the whole experience was something that for the first time in my life I took chances, you know, I didn't suck in my cheeks and worry about anything, and he, he, was, respond- you know, he was a great part of it.
1: And I respect that. Yeah. I respect that she's saying Altman treated me like an actress, right? You know, and that
3: right. I mean, in a in a in a podcast where we talk about these directors abusing their actresses constantly, this is a welcome change of pace.
1: Yeah, and and but also what I do hear in that is a woman who is aware how much she has to play along because here's what happens when she doesn't. Right. A couple years after this, she gets a call from Robert Altman. He's like, "Hey, do you want to be in my next picture?" She says, "Only if it's a good part." And he hangs up on her. And he—that's it. Wow. That's it. She's done. He doesn't give her the part. It was a role in Nashville. Oh, and just wow. because she said only if it's a good part, he as hung if, up on her.
3: As if she didn't have a good part in the last film.
1: Exactly. And so she had to always play really nice. In yeah. which she—the one time she did it at all—that was it, and she was cut out of Nashville. And I would, I, you know, and I do think like when you compare, say, the way this character Hulahan is treated mm. in Mash to the way that, say, the strip scene is handled in Nashville. Yeah. You know. That feels like a very different director behind 100%. the scenes. I think that strip scene in Nashville is incredibly powerful.
3: I totally agree. So
1: I don't know. I guess you just only wanted to lean into the humor of Mash and not lean into the emotion of Nashville. But, but... why
3: can't you just say that it's a director who is learning his craft? Yeah, you know, it's like like you know, he's somebody that is getting to be more adept at what he wants to say. I think that Nashville, in its messiness, is a much a uh, more pointed film, talking a lot about politics and and uh, and fanaticism, and there's so many things going on there. I, I totally think that that movie has all the elements of this, but way better.
1: It's true, but it does bum me out on Sally Kellerman's behalf that she doesn't get to have the career, of, say, like in Elliot Gold or a Donald Sutherland. And by yeah. the '80s, she's doing films like like Meatballs Three.
5: And after sexy angel Sally Kellerman hits Heaven's Gate. It's just the way I picture it. She's sent to Earth to earn her wings. I think I've gone
0: from horny to crazy. I
7: it was going to be tougher than thought.
5: And the whole place goes topsy-turvy when she turns the camp nerd into the last word in love. I
1: mean, basically, Meatballs Three. She plays a porn star who is sent back to Earth to teach a guy how to get laid. Hey, I like this premise. I mean, it's very much weird, science
3: in the way. Yes, okay. Oh boy.
1: But it blows me out. By the way, did you recognize her voice from anything?
3: Sally Kellerman. I mean, uh, I know that. I just know Sally Kellerman. But no, what from what?
1: Let me play a commercial for you. Wonderful place, Hidden Valley. Oh,
7: wow! That's hilarious. The home of Hidden Valley Ranch salad dressing. Folks here are proud of our original ranch recipe. The secrets in the special blend of herbs and spices. And everyone loves that creamy homemade taste. Okay. Hidden Valley Ranch. I guess. How could anything so fresh and delicious come from anywhere else? True, not everyone can live in Hidden Valley, but you sure can get a taste of it.
1: Do you want to hear another one? Because I also pulled yeah, one for sure, Honey Dijon. Yeah, Why not? Yeah, okay. I love it.
7: From the mustard fields of Dijon, France. Comes a delicious idea to Hidden Valley Honey Dijon ranch A touch of tangy Dijon mustard A drizzle of sweet honey Only if it's a good sauce will I do this commercial. From Hidden Valley. No, Discover good. tangy sweet honey Dijon ranch Three very special tastes In one sensational salad dressing
3: Get right. that money, Salad. Get Sally. that money. <laughs> uh, Amy, is there a Simpsons?
1: Yes, there is. I pulled a clip from an episode of The Simpsons called Whiskey Business. This is a tragic episode. This is the episode where Moe wonders if suicide yes. is painless.
0: Suicide, finally. I'm really doing it.
1: No more cries for help! Because this time, there's no one that's going
4: to save me! I mean, it's not like I'm begging you, please! Please show
5: me some love!
7: Yeah, it's nothing like that.
4: maybe I should call. Give one of the new kids a chance to talk to the legend.
7: Hello. You have reached the Buzz Cola suicide hotline. Our options have changed. So please, listen carefully. State the reason you are committing suicide.
4: Nothing to live for.
7: You said business problems. Is that correct?
4: No. I got nothing and no one.
7: You said... Face sucked off by vacuum cleaner. Is that correct? <laughs> no, no, help me, help. If your face is in the vacuum cleaner bag, press one.
0: I just want to talk
5: to a human being.
7: Please hold for our next available life extension agent. Suicide is painless. Yeah. It brings on many changes.
3: Well, Amy, I uh, I guess, I mean, I can guess where I think you are going to go. Does this belong on the list? Nah. No, nah, I agree. I don't think this belongs on the list. I think there's better Altman's. I think that uh, I think there's better war films. I think on this there's list. better
1: chaotic comedies.
3: Yeah, a hundred percent. Well. That wraps it up then for this week's episode of MASH. And next week, guess where we're going, Amy? This is going to be fun. A movie that people have said is one of the most insane films on the AFI list. I mean, people are get ready for this movie. It's a movie that I also have never heard of. There's been two so far that I've never heard of. This is the other one. It's a film called Sunrise.
1: I'm so excited for Sunrise.
3: I don't know anything about it. Nothing at all. Uh, and maybe this would be a good chance. You know, I imagine that people are like me. They don't know what it's about. Maybe it's a good chance for you to call in and tell us what you think Sunrise is about, um, and you can give us a call at 747-666-5824. 747-666-5824. I'm very excited to go in completely uh, blind to this movie. I don't know a thing. I don't know who's in it. I think it maybe involves some sort of an outer
1: space. I will say one thing about it: hmm. there's a pig. So if you want to add a pig to your synopsis, All right. go ahead.
3: I love it. All right, there's going to be a pig. Oh, that's even better. She gave you a hint. Seven four seven six 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 five eight two four. Amy, we will see you next week.
0: that it's the call of the crave and when the crave calls you know what to do try the five dollar bacon bundle because the only thing better than a white castle slider is a white castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon so pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider 1921 bacon cheese slider or chicken bacon ranch slider and also get a small fry for just five dollars with the five dollar bacon bundle white castle follow your crave